Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you listening online and watching and or, good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts chapter 17. Before I begin, we were singing, or you were singing, about dancing in, on the streets of gold. I don't see myself doing that, but I do see myself assigned by the Lord to make sure things don't get out of control. <laughs> You're going to watch those dancers. We will stand and read Acts 17, verses 22 and 23, but we will take verses 23 to the end, which is verse 34, for exposition. So if you have your Bibles open or not, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Please be seated. The religious wrong, that's who these folks are. Not to draw attention to the religious right, but they're wrong and they're very religious. And we have a reason for saying these things about those who worship false things. Here's a perfect opportunity as Christians go. These men had invited Paul to come up and tell them about Christ. I mean... What Christian doesn't want an opportunity like that, just to lob that up for me to smack it out of the park? And he's going to clearly lay it out with respect. And yet, they're going to dismiss what he has to say, most of them. This is a reality. It's a part of life. Just because God opens a door does not mean that it's all going to work out just fine for you. Uh, Moses, God opened a door for Moses, and the people turned on him very quickly. And so this is uh, just being sober-minded, mature in our faith, even our Lord. There were places that he had gone to, and of course, with, with his teaching and even the miracles, he was rejected. Matthew thirteen fifty-eight. now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And that's what it comes down to. That's what we're up against, those who don't believe. These are educated religious men. And the most educated of their day, many would would say. We look now at verse 22. <clears throat> then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Well, they would have agreed with that. Uh, but as I mentioned, this, is, this discussion on religion is not going to go the way that Paul would like it to go. He has had a lot of success in other places, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. Uh, But here, he won't be persecuted for what he teaches. He'll be laughed at. And that is a part of sharing the gospel. His audience, these religious men, they were self-impressed intellectuals at that. It's not written anywhere that a person who is intelligent is obligated to be arrogant. That is something that uh, Satan attaches to intelligence. 
I think God wants all of his people to learn as much as they can, but to properly manage these things. And these rebukes are throughout Scripture. So they supposed themselves to be the custodians of all knowledge. And they were bringing Paul up to inquire about what he had been preaching uh, there in, in the city of Athens. With them, you were nobody until they said you were somebody. And this is not the way that uh, Christians should, should behave. But yet many, many do, unfortunately. Uh, an arrogant pride. It blankets many places on the earth in, in some churches. Isaiah, we covered this, um, this, this Wednesday, going through Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And that is not the only place in Scripture where having a, a, a high-minded attitude of oneself is uh, rebuked. God resists the proud. And the distinction between a decent pride where you are enjoying a success versus an arrogant pride where you are belittling others. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, literally in the Greek, very religious is spirit-fearing. Well, they're, they're mindful of the spiritual world. Uh, that's the idea, and, and this proper word by the New King James uh, translators, they were religious. But religion can't wash away sin. And this is where he's going to try to get to, he's going to say, God commands repentance. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. And they're going to scoff at that, because those who are not ready for the truth of God, uh, are, they resist accountability especially that of Jesus Christ. They like to form uh, their own system of accountability and standards, which is idolatry. But it is the greatest need of a human being uh, to repent, to get right with God. There is no greater need. Everything else is going to die. I mean, again, if you, you could throw a baseball 200 miles an hour. If you're not right with God, if this going to not help you at all. not going to help you either if you are right with God. All these things are wood, hay, and stubble. What matters is a relationship with your maker. And yet, the resistance to this is global. And it is only increasing uh, as we approaching, are approaching the last days. So what they were religious? Was their religion made in heaven or elsewhere? And that's what it always comes down to. And I, I want to stress that when you complicate the gospel, you're not helping anyone. It is a simple format. It is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, it, it doesn't say, well, you have to go off to a seminary and learn how to be a Christian. Uh, you know, there is a such thing as on-the-job training with the Lord. But don't complicate the gospel. Uh, and it's done all the time. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate. These men were notorious for making things complicated. And uh, again, their religion, there was no unbroken witness of their religion from the time of creation as with ours. We can trace the origins back to Adam all the way to this present day uh, with the prophecies assisting uh, very much. No one else has this. Uh, to just make bodacious claims about God is wrong. 
and God doesn't appreciate it himself. If someone were to make bodacious claims about me, even if they were flattering, if they were not true, I, I would not. I would be a little disturbed by that. And God finds this an abomination. And religion, particularly religion without the Holy Spirit, is a negative force in the world. Uh, wars have been, many wars have started because of religion. And to this day in the world, there are religions that uh, are very much a negative force. It is supposed to be a governing force on the individual's life and therefore the, the society. And this is where we are in this section of, of Acts. This is what we're considering. Those who are intelligent, very religious, and very wrong at the same time. Just because you can get high grades does not know, mean you know what to do with life. And if it did mean that, then uh, there, there'd be no problems, would there? This uh, religious conversation, a governing force in one's life, be you a Christian, a pagan, or an atheist, or something else, it always should come back to, is it true or not? This goes all the way back to Cain. Cain and Abel. What, what Cain did was just, he, had, he was religious, but he wanted religion his way. He did not want to conform to God. He wanted God to conform to him. And so he brought what was rejected. John, in his letter, points out that Cain had some big issues, and they were all bad. Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. I think that's pretty straight out. There are, some, there are a few people in the Bible, you don't have to say, I wonder if they're in heaven or hell. Because the Bible tells us. We know that Judas, you won't see him in heaven. Because he is the son of perdition, according to the scripture. And well, here's another one. Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works, that is his brother Abel, uh, I mean Cain. Because his works, Cain, were evil and his brothers righteous. He resented the religion. It was a religious issue. It was an issue on what one believed concerning God, either theirs or the true God as revealed. And Satan, he does not hate religion. He's invented most of it. Now, man-made religions are more than a nuisance. And they are a nuisance, too. They detour souls from truth. From God, and we should be alert to this. Man-made religion has been a problem since Cain, who made the first religion. He's the first. The first record we have in Scripture in the Book of Origins was Cain, and it is a problem mainly because of an inferior and defective view of God, because the view of God doesn't come from Him. And a sinner can't, he cannot successfully make up things about God. And that doesn't seem to stop them. And uh, this is idolatry. Idols are not always made with tools. A person can fashion an idol in their imagination. In fact, the ones that they fashion with stone or marble or whatever tools they use is first fashioned in their head. And now folks are too sophisticated. Uh, in most circles, to pray to uh, a, a statue, although we have a whole religion that is dominated by 
this practice, and it is forbidden in Scripture. I don't get it any more than you. Like, where do you, where do you get these things from? Praying to another human being, praying to statues. This is not from the Bible. Please stop using the, the, the Bible then, or claiming that it is acceptable in Scripture when it is not. Man-made religion essentially is man reaching for God in the sense of uh, they are calling the shots, whereas God's religion is God reaching for man, revealing himself to man. Don't be afraid of the, you know, we have this thing, well, Christianity is not a religion. Well, that's true compared to other religions, but it's actually a little flawed because even James talks about pure religion. It's just a system of our beliefs, and Christianity is a system of beliefs. We call it doctrine. There is a systematic theology that, that we should develop. Uh, we link, this is why I believe this, and this is why I don't believe that, because there is a system to it. There's nothing wrong with that. It only becomes wrong when it is counterfeit when it does not originate with God himself. And it's not difficult to establish that. So uh, religions that theorize about the spiritual realm are idolatrous. And these men, as intelligent as they were, had not a shred of evidence for what they believed. None. They're groping around for truths without Caring for truth. Whereas God says, I reach down for my people. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And it's fundamental to tell somebody, you know, God does want you to believe, to receive him. And if anybody, I think, disagrees with that, they are departing from the clear teaching of the word of God, where God, it says God desires all men to be saved. That's what he wants. Long-suffering, willing that none should perish. And those who go to hell are not there because God wanted that. I, that. Not his first choice. It was the consequence. And I don't know why people think a baseless or a half-truth religion is somehow acceptable to a holy God. All of this belongs to what Paul is facing. Paul is dealing with people that have no basis for their beliefs. And, he's, and how do I deal with that? He's certainly, as he's walking through the city, is provoked by the idols. He sees their many objects of worship. And he wants to reach them. We do too. We want to reach lost souls also. But only God can show man the way to God. And when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no man comes to the Father. He's saying, I am the way, and you can't get there without me. Nothing has changed. It's always been this way. If you were in ancient Israel and you said, well, I'm going to tell you the way to God, and it didn't agree with God, you were a false prophet. Verse 23, for I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, he's trying to identify with them. I think there's some over-identification, at least the lesson for us to be careful about identifying with those who have wrong views about God. 
because he's not going to have a lot of success with these folks. Now, that's not necessarily to charge Paul with wrong, because when he gets to Corinth, he doesn't... In fact, we don't read of his, him using these tactics again. Uh, I'll cover that towards the end. But here he says that uh, there were many objects of their worship. That's their idols. All of them wrong. The world is irritated by that. What do you mean, they're all wrong? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, I don't have to agree with them because they don't like my position. I can tell somebody who has lost, I don't agree with you. I agree with the Bible. And the Bible doesn't agree with you. Doesn't even like how you chew your food. You can't, no, that's a little too much. But anyway, a human can worship many things because he has the capacity to worship. It's built into us. This desire to worship God, to know God. But that does not mean that the person will submit to God. And this is, of course, everywhere. Every idol proves the capacity for God and proves the capacity for sin at the same time. It is most certainly a fact that wrong worship is easy. It is very easy to worship a false god, a lie, something that has no basis in truth. And I have found it is very difficult sometimes to worship the God of truth because of my flesh, not my spirit. My spirit is 100% with God. My flesh is not. But there's there's two different things. We're dealing with truth, accepting it, receiving it, believing it. God is not going to conform to the imagination of men. Uh, Again, the very thing which idolatry is. The world would say this is very narrow-minded. And we would say, Amen. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, Matthew 7, 13. When it comes to truth, we are to be very narrow-minded. It would eliminate a lot of the weirdness in Christianity if more Christians were a little bit more narrow-minded. And so, you know what? I don't know. I'm not going to accept that. I see that as contrary to what the Scripture does. Anyway, so it says, he says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Well, they freely admitted that there could be a God they missed. Maybe there's another one out there. We're making them up all day. Maybe we didn't get to that one yet. (laughs) And so Paul sees that and he says, well, that's what I'm going to preach on. That's going to be my sermon. And it, it is a good sermon, uh, but it, um, you know, you don't want to criticize Paul. Because when you get to heaven, he's going to challenge you to a spelling test and win because he's real smart. But, uh, but you, at the same time, you can't dismiss certain things that are there. That's why they are recorded. With all the gods they worshipped, with all the gods they boasted about, and they boasted about their gods, they missed the only true one. All this intelligence, and you got the wrong one. You got a whole room full of wrong things. Incidentally, Lucifer is highly intelligent, and he chose to be God's enemy. That's not too smart. So you can be intelligent and not smart, uh, not to properly apply that intelligence. Well, um, they left room for God, a God that they did not know. Paul's going to tell them. He says, I know him. I want to introduce you to him. But will they like the terms? It always comes to that, doesn't it? Will the individual 
like the terms set by truth. Because truth does not budge. It makes a demand. It says this is how it is. Uh, so he says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. The unknown God is knowable. Very simple, straight and to the point. But Christ remains a stranger to those who want to dictate to him to uh, not receive his, his lordship. So um, I just close something. Give me a moment here because I don't know, even know what verse I was in. Okay, let's go now to verse 24. And there he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Hmm. If these terms of creatorship are a problem, then you have a problem. If you have a problem with God creating everything from nothing, you have a very big problem. And this explains why so much of the world wants no part of the scripture. Uh, science is willing to just believe in a theory than reason. And uh, the evolution of the species is still a, a theory. They still don't have the evidence. But that doesn't stop them from presenting their theory as fact. And as a matter of fact... There have been, from this church, some that have gone on to the universities and learned science and leaning toward evolution. Well, you don't know what you're talking about when you say the missing link. Well, where is the missing link? Where's that connection that therefore proves without a fact that we have evolved from... You know, the, the basis of evolution is simply fish have eyes. I must have come from them because I have eyes. That's a very, I'm just simplifying it for you because that's what Darwin did. And, and Darwin wasn't that smart of a guy. Uh, Ingersoll was intelligent as men go, and he is the one that uh, used Darwin as his platform to resist Christ. Anyway, uh, an idol is a representation of man's uh, created ideas about God, of deity. But we need to be firm in what we believe. So when Jonah was running, that great prophet, and Jonah was a great prophet. He had some mental issues for a while there with God. But uh, there was because of his flesh. Because you got to say, Jonah, are you crazy? I mean, really, throw me overboard? Why not just repent? Why not just get right with God? Anyhow, uh, anyway, Jonah. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That was his theology. And uh, we should be as sure of ours as Jonah. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who died for sinners and lived a virtuous life, a sinless life. I believe he was crucified for sinners, and on the third day he rose again. I believe he's returning. And I believe he is on the throne of God because he is God the Son. That's what I believe to the world. And he, hopefully that creates questions. Well, he says here in verse 24 that he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Well, the Athenians relished their temples, the Parthenon, the Temple of Zeus. They had them all over the place. And they actually believed their gods were living in these things. That's not the same as, as Judaism. Uh, when the temple of God was the, had there the 
a mercy seat of God, which was the dwelling place in the sense that God would be available to his people, but not in the sense that he wasn't anywhere else. When Solomon dedicates the temple, he makes this clear. He makes it clear that we understand that God's not limited to a temple. He says in 1 Kings 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Jesus, when he speaks to the woman at the well, the woman of shattered romances, she had a hard life. There are things about her that are very admirable, though. What I like, uh, just a little side note here, what I like about the woman at the well is she was not a fraud. She was not fake. When she told the men of the city what just happened at the well with Jesus, they didn't scoff at her. They acted on what she said. She had to have had a reputation of it. Maybe, Maybe she wasn't the most moral, but she wasn't a liar. She wasn't a fraud. And that's one of the things that comes out of this. Anyway, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And pause there. You see, that's saying, I know what I believe. And I'm not apologizing for it. I'm not sorry for it. I'm not going to change it if you don't share the view. This is what I believe. And, so he, and there's nothing rude about this. To be firm is not to be offensive necessarily. He continues, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is, at, this is Christianity and this is what Paul believed. And he's telling these men the very same thing. That, you know, this, you, you guys got it wrong. God's not looking to, for, for what you could do with your hands. He wants to know what the heart is doing. And that will show up through your hands. He continues, verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. <laughs> well, we sing the song, Nothing's in my, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I mean, uh, God doesn't have needs. He has wants. There are things he desires. He desires all men to, become, to be saved, for example. But he doesn't have to have that. And uh, here, you know, why would you think a God who could create the universe would need something? Uh, he just created. If, you know, if he needed it, I sure need an apple. Well, just create one. I mean, so the logic, he's trying to reason with men who boasted of being rational. And they only went so far with their rationale. He says, as though he needed anything. See, that's doctrine. That's how, when the Bible states things like that, we say, okay, this is a truth. Coming from the Apostle Paul, we, and other places, we know God doesn't need anything. In another place, Psalm, in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, God says, if I needed something, I wouldn't tell you. So I make the hills and the sheep and all of that. I don't need anything. Psalm, again, 50, verses 10 through 12 the doctrine uh, that belongs to our, our faith. Anyway, as though he needed anything here in verse 25, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Again, if he can create the universe, what makes you think he's needy? Now, paganism, paganism, which is the worship of created things in any form, worshiping nature, you've got these people, oh, the, world, the earth is melting, you know, the ice, we're all going to... 
drown in ice, water. Um, there's, uh, there's going to be a global warming coming, and it's not man-made. It will be the Great Tribulation period. And these things that uh, these folks are worshiping and fiercely de- de- defensive about is, is paganism. And most of them are science. Remember the few who went up to measure the, the, the loss of ice and they got stuck in the ice? This happened a few years ago. It's like this, there was another one. They were having a conference in Minnesota, but it was canceled because of a blizzard. I mean, it's just the mock. I mean, any, anyway, okay, back to this. Pagans and false religions with their false idea of God believe that their God has needs and even needs to be defended. Islam is notorious for wanting to defend their God. Well, he ain't God if he needs your defense. I mean, if he can create the universe, does he really need you to protect him? Or his reputation? When we give a defense of our faith, we're talking about truth. We're not defending God. We're just for, we're trying to reach you by telling you why we have the reason for the hope that is in us to every man an answer. But we're not trying to defend God. You, you can't. It's a silly notion. And yet, most of the world has these limited and defective views of God. So the unbelievers, they bring their animal sacrifices to their temples and involved with that is feeding their gods. You can go to some of these Thai restaurants and bring me with you and treat me. No, you can go to these Thai restaurants and you see a little altar shrine by the cash register with a little food on it. Well, if you've got to feed your god, you've got a big problem with your god. How can a created, a superior divine being need you to feed him? And he never eats it anyway. I mean, how do you feel when you pick it up and you go throw it in the trash? And maybe they'll scoff and say, well, that's not what we believe. Well, yeah, it is. It very much is. Well, at first glance, you'd say, well, the Jews were doing that. They'd bring their animals and the blood sacrifices to the Jews. But it's completely different because the Jew brought their animal sacrifices to acknowledge out loud that they were sinners. That it goes back to Adam and Eve, that unbroken witness. There's that connection of dots that form a conclusion. And they're saying, Adam and Eve, they sinned innocent animals were killed to cover their sin. And so the atonement in the Hebrew is the kofar, the covering. When Christ comes along, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes it away. He doesn't cover it anymore. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And this is a development that you can track. Uh, We call them dispensations, periods of time where God is working towards a goal in various stages. We are in the stage, the church age, of grace. There could be a lot of grace in the great tribulation period. It still will be there. There will be tribulation converts. But there will be. You think what's happening with the natural disasters nowadays is is something. It will be such as the world has never seen. And and they scoff at this. Uh, Anyway, uh, coming back to this, the pagans, they again sacrifice their animals because... They felt their gods were hungry. If you have to defend or feed your God, then your God is not worthy to be divine. He's not worthy to be God. Now, Paul, of course, is trying to make these points. If man makes God, then 
He is the God. They're not going to like this. Anyway, verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He has not determined their pre-appointed salvation, I should point out. The times. In other words, God, well, first off, God does not say that men have evolved. They're created beings. And Paul is not quoting from Scripture to these men, because what do they know about Scripture? That would again cause him to have to explain even more. So he's trying to just reason with them. Uh, and it, it's not working well. He doesn't know that at the moment. Or maybe he can look on the faces and, and see, but that's a difficult read. So you can look at some people and think that they're not getting it, and they're getting it totally. Anyway, um, he's giving them Scripture as far as the truths go in a language they can understand. They don't have to know that these are biblical points that Paul is making. They just have to make a decision whether it's true or not. They don't want to do that. What they want to do is decide whether or not they like it. Well, then it's not about truth, if it's about preference. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Well, man does not rule creation. That's what he is saying. Denying the creator cannot change this. God controls more things than most people are ready to acknowledge. Here's an example from Deuteronomy chapter 2. God is telling the Jews, I'm going to give you this land, but I'm not going to give you that land. So he says, then Yahweh said to me, Moses speaking, do not harass Moab, that's the people of, of Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar, that is one of the cities, to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Moabites were oblivious, as they were unbelievers, they were oblivious that God was doing this, but God was doing it nonetheless, because God controls the boundaries. And if this is, just, this is just a microcosm, a little snapshot, but it's true of everything. And that's what Paul is saying. God controls the boundaries. He lets people have free will within the boundaries. You can, you can do a lot of things, but not anything. And uh, again, I don't know, you know, you, you can do a lot of things in a padded room. But you can't get out. Uh, so, anyway, uh, God controlled and protected the land of the Moabites. And it was a land that was infested with idols. And yet God was, this is called common grace in Scripture. As opposed to special grace, which is salvation. But God uh, gives mankind things so that mankind can function and survive. And hopefully long enough to receive the truth. And we'll get to the judging of that in a moment. Verse 27, uh, in a moment, pardon me, in a moment is not one word. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Well, I think grope is probably, at least the way I think of the word, not the most ideal word, but it, it works. God created man and has not abandoned him. Deism is a belief that God, you know, created the universe and walked away. Well, that's not biblical. 
And if God created man and has not abandoned him, well, man should want their maker. And God wants men to love him back. Why not? But someone will protest, my life is too miserable to love a God who allows such misery. There are a lot of people that have that position, even if they don't articulate it that way. But that's the devil's way of looking at things. That's a very short-sighted way. Peter, in this first letter in the fourth chapter, he talks about a superior love. And since bitterness can lead to withdrawal from God, well, Satan promotes bitterness and justifies it. How could a loving God allow this and a loving God allow that? Well, let me ask this. We want to deal with it logically. If you have a miserable life and you live 70 years, what is that compared to eternity? Uh, it's, it's, it's nothing. All the more reason to love the Lord is because Satan is constantly pushing people away from him. And love under pressure is love superior. That's what the apostles were writing in 1 Peter 4. Is, yeah, you know, your hard labor is tough in life. No, we all get it. You're under the curse. This is the way God's going to get for him. So he's going to filter out. God is going to filter from creation those who are disinterested in him. And what he will be left with in heaven is a population of people who will, we will be spiritually fit for this, who will be with him forever. And so when Paul says here in verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord. Now, they don't know Lord, the master to them. They don't have the details that we have of Christ yet. He says, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Well, to grope in the Greek, that verb is to touch, to handle. God wants contact. That's what he's saying. God wants people to contact him. And these are Greeks. He's not saying God just wants the Jews or select folks. He wants people to have contact with him. This Greek word is used in Luke 24. After the resurrection of Christ, Jesus said, Behold my hands and my feet, that I myself that it is I myself. And then he says, here's the Greek word, handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So this is when he's up in, in the upper room, and it's just a, an amazing moment. The point I want to draw from this is that when he says that we are to grope, what he is saying is God wants contact. And the, word, the usage of the word in Luke 24, 39, he says, touch me and see. Uh, of course, nobody would dare get up and touch. Uh, maybe Peter, but uh, no, he would not. None of them would. They, they got it. Anyway, man was not created to grope for God, as we might use the word as a blind man, which the word in, used in Greek writings, the word grope was you know, as a blind man tries to feel his way through uh, wherever he is traveling. Uh, again, he's trying to touch and handle, okay, that's a wall and this is a hole in the ground or whatever. He's trying to make his way. But because of sin, man has been separated from God. And now it's not automatic. Sin has caused man to lose his touch with God and in many cases lose his mind. This is all the more reason to desire him. 
I would love to have heard the tone in Paul's voice as he's making these points, because this is a man that truly loved lost souls of all types. Again, he's provoked in this. He's irritated that Satan is getting away with lying to people about God, and they're doofus enough to believe Satan. Okay, they don't have anything to compare it to. Well, here I am, and I've got something. And so this is his effort to reach the loss. Being right with God requires contact, requires receiving him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Anybody can receive. Well, people have a desire to seek God, but their sin confuses their understanding. And we have another in a hymn. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Sin just messes up everything. But God is the antidote. Truth from Scripture. Though he is not far from each of us, he says. Well, he's telling them we can find God. Well, they, you know, they had mixed views on this. The Stoics and the Epicureans had all sorts of weird views. Uh, but uh, their philosophies were no match for the facts. But they didn't want to go any deeper. So they refuse to believe. And it's so easy. It's so easy to believe in the simple truths of the gospel. If you're going to save souls, oh, years ago I remember witnessing to somebody that was a hard-nosed evolutionist. And I, don't, I didn't know enough to go at the juggler, as we might say. And I succeeded in moving him from evolution. But I don't think I succeeded him in moving him to Christ. Uh, I won the logic argument, but I don't think I won the soul. And it, uh, you know, of course, there's so much poured into this person. I sure hope the Lord found, brought someone else to, to water and caused the increase. Lesson learned is to lay out the truth that man is a sinner. And that is the deal breaker with God. You will not handle God. You will not touch God. Unless you admit who you are. Otherwise, you are a fraud in his face, saying that you're good enough to receive whatever God may have. And God says, no, you're not. He's telling them here that God is omnipresent and ubiquitous. He's, he's everywhere and present at the same time, yet not pantheistic. And I, I don't even like using these words. But pantheism, essentially that... God is in the wood, and he's in everything. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. But that's what some of them believe. Paul is saying, no, he's everywhere, but he is independent of his creation in the sense that he's, he's, he's not part of a tree. Uh, verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So he quotes one of their honored authors, as we might quote a Mark Twain, who was not a believer. Uh, we can speak of some of the unbelieving uh, people with respect, uh, even though they don't believe. Uh, I think Mark Twain was very witty, but he, again, he was an antichrist. So the common grace was active in his life, God allowing him to have this wit. But special grace was something he would not receive. Uh, even though he had a lot of hardship in his life. But what we don't find the scriptures encouraging us to do is show respect to false teachers and false prophets. You, know, you just can't chum. I mean, I, who here would buddy up with Louis, 
Farrakhan. Who here would speak highly of the, the Delhi Lama? Uh, Dali, I know, but it's Delhi. Uh, these people are not for Christ. And to expect me to somehow admire them when they are hostile against Christ ain't going to happen. I can't see, uh, you know, the, the prophet Elijah going out to dinner with Jezebel. Uh, you know, in fact, he sent her to dinner. You know, the dogs ate Jezebel. That's what the Bible says. And we secretly go, yeah, because she was that bad. Anyway, uh, for we are also his offspring. Well, God is the originator of life. That's our origin, straight and to the point. Again, uh, he's trying to identify with them enough so they would, they would say, okay, this man, is, he's, lo- he's, he's a thinker like us. He's thought these things through, these logical arguments. We like it. That's what he was after. It's not what he got. Not what he got at all. When he gets to Corinth, and there were some of these wise guys there too, but not as many. Uh, when he gets to Corinth, he's going to preach Christ. He's going to preach him crucified. And it evidently was something he stressed, and I think we should too. And I think going back to my evolutionist friend, I should have been more, you're a sinner, and you're going to hell. Uh, whether you believe in evolution or not is not the point. The point is, what are you going to do with your sin? What are you going to do about the Savior who extends his hand so you can have touch with him? What are you going to do about that? So if, you do, if we don't offer this, and what is missing is conviction. And conviction is guilt owned. When a person is convicted, is, ideally, we have the evidence, you're the guilty one. Uh, that brings conviction. Spiritually, theologically speaking, it's the person that realized they're convinced that they're wrong before a holy God and in jeopardy. And for me, I didn't know those words like that. But when God called me, I was convinced I was going to hell. And I was so happy he grabbed hold of, my, grabbed hold of me. And, uh, oh man, what a wonderful time that was. Every Christian probably remembers the time when they really came into that born-again experience. Anyway, verse 29. Therefore, since we are his off- the offspring of God, we ought not to think... Of the divine nature is like gold or silver stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So he is exposing their error and explaining the truth. There's more to Christianity than sharing the truth. We also, at some point, have to deal with the error. I just think we don't want to deal with the error first. We want to deal with the sin first. And then go back, like my friend with the evolution. I should have gone more. And maybe I did, and I don't remember. But I'm, if I'm telling the story, so the way I'm telling it is, I remember really slamming evolution as being dumb and stupid and uh, unfit for human consumption. And he, he believed it. But did he believe in Christ? Verse 30. Truly these things of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And there it is. All right, you have, there's error. And God is a just God. In 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter, Paul is going to deal with this high-minded stuff. The Jews, they prided themselves in Moses and the prophets. The Greeks prided themselves in philosophers. The Romans prided themselves with their legions. Paul told them, yeah, well, God re- de- commands repentance because you're still sinners. 
with all your Bible, with all your philosophy, with all your armies, you still need to get right with the holy God. He said, but now commands every, all men everywhere to repent. And the call to repentance is a Christian imperative. There's no salvation without com- repentance. How do, you, how do you get saved going into heaven thinking that you really don't need to be, uh, you know, you're really not that bad. Uh, this is offensive to some people. He's verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Well, only God knows this day. Uh, Sinners, impenitent sinners, they scoff at God's accountability, like to create their own terms of accountability. You know, walk upstairs on your knees or something like that instead of just, you know, uh, ordering the life behind God. Romans 14.10 for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's writing that to, to believers. So he declares God is creator, and as such, he has the right to judge. If he is the creator, this is his universe, he has every right to judge men. Now the Stoics and the Epicureans, they had a concept of right and wrong, but not before God the creator. He says he would judge the world in righteousness. Always, God's judgments are always right. And no one's going to be able to whine about who didn't get to heaven because they didn't hear the gospel. In the end, and God has hidden these things from us, he will handle it. Isaiah 5, again, Yahweh of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. In other words, when he judges, the righteous will say, you can't get any more right than that. That is it. He continues, Isaiah does, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. He's, he's not going to get anything wrong. When he judges a soul, he's going to be right. It is our responsibility to present the gospel as to whoever God allows us to. Remember, Paul didn't walk the streets with a sandwich board, you know, saying, repent or you're going to hell. He established relationships with people. I'm personally, I don't believe in debates, unless in the learning processes, yeah, but I don't know of a debate where the people come away saying, boy, the other side won. I'm changing teams. They just double down. And they, they said, well, you know, you failed in the debate. You should have done better. Okay, this is what you should have said. Uh, maybe you disagree with that. If you want to debate it, um, I think that he's debating here in, in a, or approaching that, and which would explain for why he was not as successful as he will be in Corinth where he declares. Well, he says, by the man whom he has ordained, that is anointed, the Christ. Uh, We're running out of time, so I'm, I'm moving a little faster. And he gives assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Well, they didn't even care to explore that. They couldn't argue with a creator. They couldn't argue with the fact that, you know, you know God's not in stone and marble, whatever you, you're using. Uh, they couldn't argue with anything he was saying except the resurrection. But rather than saying, well, tell us more about this resurrection, like they did in the beginning. Tell us more about this Christ you're preaching. They laughed at him, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him, and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Well, again, they didn't persecute Paul, these Athenians. They just laughed at him. The carnal man, uh, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him. At the base of their rejection is not the rising, raising of the dead. 
It's a defective definition of God. That is at the base of their rejection. So he's going to move to Corinth, and they're going to move to doom. But when Satan is allowed to write your dictionary, you're going to draw wrong conclusions. And their dictionary, in their dictionary, it was impossible for God to raise the dead, even though they have all the wacky beliefs that were just as sensational, if not more. They didn't want this one because they did not want to repent. He says, while others said we will hear you again on this matter. Big mistake. Poor life choice right there. Felix, when he heard Paul reason about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, the governor, Felix, said to him, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Well, he never called for him enough to be saved. Verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. He did his job there. There's nothing more he could do. He wasn't going to stay there and try to twist their arms, win their friendship and, oh, believe me, um, kind of a thing. He, he moved on. Verse 30, 34, however, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Aragapite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the word of God did not return void. Dionysus here, the Aragapite, uh, he was one of the intelligent ones. He was one on the council. The point that comes out, if he could get it, the others had no excuse. We see this today. John Lennox is a man that uh, is a devout believer in the Lord, highly intelligent, very educated, got all the credentials, can't get any higher than that. His colleagues reject what he has to say. If John Lennox could get it, they should have got it too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a lot of work trying to overcome the work of Satan, but it is worth it. And it is possible. And the proof of that is our presence here. If it wasn't possible to save lost souls, there'd be no church. But there are churches, and there are good churches. And they have in those, we have in these churches people who love and worship you. And we ask, uh, we always ask, I would think, it would be high up in our petitions to you, to use us more and more to help us bring the gospel to lost souls in such a way that they would follow the command to repent and that you'd give us the ability to explain these things, the timing and the opportunities. If you've been listening or watching and you've not opened your heart to Christ, then you're just as guilty as those who mocked Paul. Death is sure, and the judgment is too. And if you're not ready to meet your maker on his terms, it's going to go very bad for you. You may have think that you've survived life this far, that you'll do all right in hell. That's Satan selling you a bag of goods. And if you're foolish enough to buy those goods... You will reap what you sow. Uh, make no mistake, God wants you to have contact with him on his terms. And those terms are glorious. If you would say this prayer with me and open your heart to the Lord Jesus, he will come in into your heart and he will be the one who saves your soul and rules over your life and you'll love every bit of it. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I am guilty. I ask you to forgive me. I offer my life to you right here, right now. And 
I thank you for being not only the one who died to save my soul in my place as a sinner, but also as the one who rose again from the dead as Lord of all. I give my life to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they act on it. May they not be bashful about it. May they rejoice in their confession. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.